everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular's single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen so kick back grab your popcorn and join us listen to magical rewind on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts brought to you by state farm like a good neighbor state farm is there hey girlfriends it's me carol fisher back with another season of the global number one podcast the girlfriends last time we investigated the murder of gail katz This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric, and welcome to Election Week and a special bonus episode of Turnout. This past weekend, on the cusp of the 2020 presidential election, the New York Times published an unprecedented collection by the paper's opinion writers called What Have We Lost? 15 essays on what the past four years have cost America. From innocence, conservatism, allies, pride, and for my guest today, David Brooks, faith. You talk about the floor of decency in your column. Explain what you mean by that. Yeah, my view is that most, at least modern presidents or politicians, they understood there are certain standards of behavior you don't sink below. And you may may not like George Bush or Barack Obama, but they tried to be decent and civil and, and not be, you know, talk about their hand size. And to me, the crucial moment I write about in that column was the second Republican debate, which was all the way back in 2015. The primaries. I'm Jake Tapper. We're live at the Ronald Reagan Library in Simi Valley, California for the main event. And Donald Trump had gone after Carly Fiorina for the way she looks. And then he turned to Rand Paul, the senator from Kentucky, and he said, I never attacked him on his look. And believe me, there's plenty of subject matter right there that I can tell you. But Jake, Jake, I want to I want to give Jake, Mr. Trump. And I, right now, that doesn't seem so shocking. Like Trump has done way worse. But at the moment, I was like, what is going on here that we have a presidential candidate who talks, makes fun of people's looks? uh, And it got worse. But once you fall through the floor, there's no bottom. And as a society, we're trying to find a bottom. Well, I thought it was interesting. You write that people didn't seem to be morally repulsed by this. And there was no rise up against this kind of behavior. Peter Baker and I talked about how fragile these norms are, and they really require the key players in the system to adhere to them. And why do you think that that became acceptable and even praised in some quarters, that kind of language, that kind of derision? 
I think first there's, we've gotten used to a certain, we watch enough reality TV, we get, get used to a certain level of crassness. Second, people have such low expectations of their politicians that they don't expect anything. And third, a lot of people feel the elites of society are trying to control their thought and speech with political correctness codes. And if somebody's going to break through those codes, they're like, yeah, I'm for that. And so I'd say those three things are the, are the main drivers. Let's talk about uh, elites versus everyone else. You know, um, you talk about these two armies and one is sort of college educated, you know, think of themselves as worldly and sophisticated. The other people are less perhaps educated, uh, have been left out of the American dream in many ways. And there are two sides in, in polarization. Um, how do we bring them together and what could each side do better? Yeah, uh, well, first, um, we have a way to do this. It's called contact theory. You just bring people into contact with each other. And I got the 2016 election way wrong. And so I spent the next four years up until COVID going about 35 or 40 states a year, just really traveling and being with, uh, other people would call it going to a bar, I call it reporting. And so I'd sit in <laughs> the bar and just talk to people and, and <clears throat> or breakfast club, diner. Uh, and I learned so much. I learned that people who voted for Trump, they're not all racists. There's a lot of complicated reasons people voted for that guy and still vote for that guy. I ran into a guy in South Dakota who said the best day of my life, he was like 70, was 35 years ago. I got laid off at my job because I didn't have the skills and I thought I would just slip out. And I opened my office door and there were two rows of people, 3,500 people, the whole plant's um, workforce with a double rows. And he walked between them from his office door to his car door in the parking lot as they applauded and cheered him as he went. And he said, that was my best job. That was the best day of my life. Every job I've had since is worse. And so I need a change. And so he was going to vote for Donald Trump and everybody he knew was going to vote for Donald Trump. The communities are crumbling. I would say that two things that each side can do. First, the supporters of Trump can insist on honesty. <laughs> you know, they, we just got to have rules of honesty. Second, those of us in the more college educated class, we have to persist in our efforts to get to know those people. Four years ago, we all read J.D. Vance's book and thought, oh, I'm going to try to get to know them. And then we sort of stopped. And we often condescend, and I'll say this I've, as a media person, like Vic, you obviously, you know, of the mainstream media organizations, of the 5,000 people in them, how many of them are Trump supporters? Uh, very, very few. And if you tell 40% of the country your voice isn't worth hearing, well, they're going to react badly. And so we need to do a better job of integration and content. How do you do that, though, when you say that he's busted through the floor of decency? I mean, it's a real conundrum, I think, for people because they want to be fair. And yet someone who repeatedly lies and seems to have crashed through that floor, how do you stand up to that? So that's a very difficult and tricky right. thing to navigate, is it not? Yeah. And even, you know, I've been on shows where we've had Trump supporters and they haven't behaved in a professional manner. So, I mean, we do have standards of perfection for our profession. So that is a challenge of eventually we, you find some, but um, if breaking the norm is part of being a Trump supporter, then how do you, how do you work and collaborate? That, that is a genuine problem. But hopefully if Trump loses, we can have Trumpism without Trump. 
that the the ideas that could have they could have created an administration out of of how to help uh, rural America, how to help industrial America. We can have people who champion those ideas without the norm breaking behavior of Donald Trump. Do you think if if elected Joe Biden will champion those ideas and reach out to those communities because it seems that they feel and I think legitimately that they're not being heard or valued. And I think, I mean, and and fortuitously, he's, I think the right man for this moment because he comes from Scranton. He, he, condescension is not a note I've ever seen him hit. He doesn't do condescension. And so he just, I think he fits in naturally and it has a natural rapport with people in working class communities that even Barack Obama did not have. Uh, And so I think he's well fit for this moment. Someone just sent me a new ad he's done that Bruce Springsteen narrates uh, to his song, My Hometown. And it's about a guy from Scranton. Uh, and I do think he's rooted in that these kind of small city, rural America, and has an agenda, which if he's smart, if he focuses an agenda that addresses deindustrialization, all the places that have hurt because mills closed, then you particularly hit two communities and you hit them at the same time with the same program, African-Americans and rural whites. And to have a program that unites those two groups and helps them would be, I think, a great thing for this country. I also think if he could focus on retraining, you know, we've heard a lot about the transition from fossil fuels to, uh, you know, green energy. And I think that terrifies people who think it means they're going to lose their job. And I've never understood why such a small percentage of GDP is really focused on retraining individuals for the jobs of the future. You know, or at least getting us out of the model where you have to go to college to have a good job. Like a community college or apprenticeship programs are just a more effective way to give people the skills they need to succeed. They, you know, we send so many people to college and like, 25 or 30 of them, percent of them get through. And so we have a system that's failing 70% of the people. How can we stick with that? Not to mention the exorbitant cost of college, right. which just does not seem to be sustainable to me. Right, that's for sure. And colleges are now suffering. I don't know what's going to happen to higher ed in the years ahead. Let's talk about the crisis of legitimacy. You cite a survey that says, In 1997, 64% of Americans had a good or great deal of trust in the wisdom of their fellow Americans. Today, it's only a third. Right. What happened? People took a look at each other's voting behaviors and they um, said, oh, those people are not only wrong, they're crazy or they're evil. And so they lost faith in each other. To me, the scariest statistic is trust in each other. Two generations ago, if you ask people are the neighbor, are your neighbors trustworthy? 60% say yes. Now it's only 33%, and only 19% of millennial and Gen Z. The younger you go, the more distrusting people are because they've been betrayed by experience. And so when you lose, when a church loses faith in God, the church collapses. When a nation loses faith in each other, the nation collapses. And somehow restoring trust in each other is like the elemental task. Joe Biden can win. But if we don't trust in our society, if we can't work together, we're still in deep trouble. We'll be back right after this short break. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake up call. 
If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's return to this special bonus episode of Turnout with my guest, New York Times columnist, David Brooks. Why is this election such a pivotal moment in our nation's history? I think we're at one of those moral convulsion moments that happens about every 60 years. From the 1770s, we had one. The 1830s, Andrew Jackson. The 1890s, Progressive Era. 1960s, the whole culture just suddenly shifts. You get a moment where you get a lot of indignation. People are disgusted with the state of society. A new generation comes on the scene. New communications technology. And suddenly the whole country just shifts ideas. And it shifts culture. And I think we're at one of those inflection points where we either decide to be a diverse society or not. We either decide to be an equal society or not. And so these elemental questions uh, are on the table. You have said this is the result of 50 years of social decay. How so? 
Well, if you look at society in the 1950s, we had a lot of problems. We had racism, we had sexism, we had a lot of anti-Semitism, but we did have a lot of cohesion. We had very low income inequality. We had very low political polarization. We had a lot of people really active in their communities, a lot of people with a stable emotional bases. And over the last 50 years, we've had a culture of me, a culture of I want to be free to be myself. And that's been great. And we've made a lot of progress, especially on race and gender and other issues. But we've torn apart this, the connections between people. And so now you have more loneliness, more distrust, more isolation, more suicide rates, a third more depression. And so people, when you make them feel lonely and, and alienated, they're going to do what their evolutionary roots tell them to do. They're going to revert to tribe. And they've reverted to political tribes. And now we don't really see issues. We just say, what, what army am I part of? Uh, and that's just been a horrible thing for our country. And let's talk about that some more, David. So our, our basic sense of belonging has now translated into our political ideology and identity. And, and why is that so damaging for our society? Because it's asking more of politics than politics can bear. Politics at its best is a competition between partial truths. Republicans believe in freedom, Democrats believe in equality, and we need to somehow find balance between those two things. Uh, and it's about policies. It's about designing a healthcare system that'll actually work for people. But we've turned it into our ethnicity. My ethnicity is being a Republican or a Democrat. It's not being Polish-American or Italian-American or somebody from Dallas or a member of this church. It's politics. And when you turn politics into your ethnicity, then any compromise is dishonor. You're dishonoring your ethnicity. And so when you, you ask so much of politics, you turn politics into this war of all against all where there's no compromise. And then it's not really that satisfying. If you devote yourself to your community and your faith and your family, these are actually emotionally satisfying things. Politics, well, say, the things that are bringing us together are the things that we hate, not the things that we love. Yeah, we, and it's important to make the distinction between tribalism and community. And community is mutual love of a thing. Tribalism is mutual hate of another. And so it feels at first like community, but it's more like an addiction than an actual relationship. What can be done about this loneliness and isolation that has prompted people to take these sides or join these armies? Yeah, well, in my view, it, it would help if we weren't being ripped apart on a day-to-day -day basis from the top of our society. So that, that answer is political. But to me, this kind of isolation and loneliness can only be helped by at local level, at relationships and by forming groups and getting active in groups active in community organizations, active in neighborhood organizations. You know, I was, became a member of an extended group about six years ago, 40 kids from DC who were like 20, and about eight of us who are older. And we had dinner every Thursday night for, for five years. And we really got in each other's business and we learned to trust one another. And we became sort of a chosen family, uh, a forged family. And that's, that's how I found community. And I think everybody tries to find something like that. Do you think that the pandemic in some ways has added fuel to this partisan fire because people don't have enough to do and enough places to go and enough activities to participate in, we become, it's increased the polarization. Yeah, I've super felt that we underestimate the emotional toll this has taken on us. Like 
just the pleasure of going to a club and watching music. Uh, so a lot of pleasures are suddenly denied us. And then we're, we're stuck looking at each other, the Twitter version of each other, not the real version of each other. And so you've seen the shocking rise in depression. There was a poll out about the middle of this year where they asked people, have you, young adults, have you contemplated suicide in the last 30 days? And like a third had. And so we're just living at a time of tremendous just emotional stress and it's showing up in all sorts of ways, especially in politics. And we talk about identity politics and how that has prohibited both a conversation about policy that allows for nuance and an environment that uh, also allows for compromise. Yeah, I mean, if, if your identity is at, stake, is at stake at your policy positions, then you, you feel your identity threatened at every moment and you can't compromise. And so if your identity is based somewhere else, then you, you're not at stake, you're not at risk of annihilation. Uh, the other thing that I think has been worrying recently, we're being not very cheerful, but we'll be cheerful, um, is uh, just the idea that we can't really communicate with each other. I can never really understand your experience and you can never really understand mine. We can't understand each other across difference. And I have great faith in reciprocal dialogue and conversation in what you've spent your career doing, interviewing people. I, the, when I was on this trip to understand the world and Trump voters, I really became convinced the interview, it's such a blessing in our profession. The interview is what helps us make contact with each other and learn about each other. And if we don't do that, and a lot of people don't, then you just don't know. You just don't know. And you can do all the academic sociological data you want. But if you don't do the interview, you don't know. And it's all punditry now. It's all uh, commentary and punditry. And it distresses me that people aren't going out and talking to regular people. I mean, when is the last time you saw that except for the pro forma, you know, diner conversation during the primaries? Right. No, I agree. But don't knock punditry. It's a living. Uh, but, but <laughs> um, yeah, no, I... I, you know, I wrote 16 columns saying, don't worry, in 2015, don't worry, Donald Trump will never get the Republican nomination. And at the time, I was working for the New York Times, living in Washington and teaching at Yale. So I was in the Acela my whole life. So like, how could I get out of touch with America with those three things? So, so I had to break out and, and spend time with people. And, and now I, I have a fair number of friends and even close family members who are supporting Donald Trump. And um, it's been useful because... So many of them are super confident he's going to win, 100% sure. And, but it's just been useful to hear the arguments, hear the points of view, which are not, not the simple, obvious ones that we assign to the, those people. When we come back, what are we going to do with all this anger we have? Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. 
Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Let's talk about wokeness because I like this quote. You say it's partly about fighting oppression, but it's also become a status symbol. It's showing people that you are so intellectually evolved that you can use words like intersectionality, decolonizing, and cultural appropriation. Political correctness is not just a means for the less privileged to set standards of behavior. It is sometimes the way people with cultural power push others around. How can the left listen to the silent majority rather than patronize them? How do we find a national discourse? Yeah, I mean, it's people take advantage of the power they have. And wokeness is a movement that emerged out of the universities and it comes thick with university jargon. It comes thick with the belief that all words are power and they can't have a conversation. I'm just asserting my power with my words and therefore my words need to be controlled. And that to me is wrong. Words are not power. Words are mutual explorations to find, you know, ways to live together and be friends. Uh, And so the impulse to censor words and use the power of your cultural position to silence others is not only in the university, it's not only in the media, it's widespread. There was a study, 62% of Americans say they're afraid to state their political opinions for fear that other people will shout them down. That's a lot of people. That's the majority of Americans who are afraid to be honest. And so I, my friends, and I obviously I'm a New York Times columnist, I'm in the precincts of cultural power. And a lot of people in those precincts don't appreciate how much power they have and how, like all power, it can corrupt you and you can abuse it. And we abuse it when we try to uh, use it to shout down and silence others. But don't you think the, the right wing is just as guilty? I mean, uh, you know, I, I don't see many people going on Fox feeling comfortable expressing a different point of view. 
Oh no, there's super right-wing wokeness just as well. There are people get canceled on the right for not totally being with Donald Trump for having some opinion or, you know, for being for gay marriage. I mean, there's, um, there, wherever these days there's, um, wokeness or whether there's political extremism, there's intolerance of difference. And I do think there's wokeness on the right just as much as on the left. I also am concerned that people can have a nuanced position that they can't support Black Lives Matter and want to get to the root of systemic racism, but also appreciate what good police officers do and yet also see the need for police reform. It seems to me you have to pick one side or the other when you know all things may be true. Yeah, and I've admired Joe Biden for this, for saying, yes, we have systemic racism, but America is still a very lovely country. Yes, we, we want to, uh, we Black Lives Matter, but we also need some law and order. So these are false binaries, and I think he's done a good job. There was a student group at University of Wisconsin this week who, I think they took down a statue of Abraham Lincoln, or they did something to cancel Abraham Lincoln. Like, you can think two things at once about Lincoln. One, by our standards, his views on race were not evolved, not correct. But you can also realize the guy gave his life to end slavery. Uh, so he did just tremendous good in, over the course of his life. And you should be able to have both those things in your mind at the same time. And the same thing is happening to Thomas Jefferson, who established my alma mater, the University of Virginia. There's a, a culture war of sorts erupting there with people feeling like he should not be sort of the patron saint of the university, somebody to be idolized. And there are those who say, you know, don't mess with Jefferson. Right. Yeah, my rule on that is we should cancel somebody if the main thing they're known for is disgraceful. So at Yale, there was a Calhoun College named after right, John Right, right. I, I did a whole thing on this, and that was the determination. What is the primary uh, accomplishment of that individual? And for John C. Calhoun, it really was perpetuating slavery. Right. And Jefferson is writing the Declaration of Independence, being president. And the, the difficult case is um, Washington and Lee University. Uh, you know, Where my late husband Oh, really? Yeah. Well, very fine school. I love, 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 I've been there many times. I love that place. My view is Lee, Washington Lee became Washington Lee because Robert E. Lee became president of the college after the Civil War. So maybe they're celebrating him for that. But other things like at Virginia Military Institute right next door, they just took down a statue of Stonewall Jackson. And maybe that's legit. Uh, it's, it's tough for them because he was the great hero and he led the students at BMI out to battle. But uh, maybe that's that stuff is legit. I, I um, my view is the statues, the Confederate statues. Some of them should come down, but mostly we should just put up other statues, statues that memorial memorialize those who were victims of lynching, who led the fight for reconstruction, for abolition, for civil rights. I'd love to see them contextualized a little more than Jordan now. I know that's one option. I sort of feel that they should be taken down if they're in a prominent position, because to me, statues in public spaces telegraph the values of that community. So I think it's yeah. kind of hard to have both, but I, I, I take your point because I know some people feel that way. I think they should belong in, in museums and be explained as a really critical part of our history, but not necessarily as the centerpiece of a community. Yeah, I, I see that. Where I live in Washington, D.C., I'm right near a thing called Lincoln Park. 
And there's a statue which was put up by former slaves of Lincoln, toward Lincoln, in homage of him. But it's him standing over a kneeling African-American slave who's breaking free. The first time I saw that, I thought, what is that doing there? Like, why is the, the African-American guy kneeling at Lincoln's feet? But it, it was put up by, uh, and I've had long debates with people in the park about that statue. And at first I thought, well, it was a historical moment. Frederick Douglass did a, a very famous speech right there. Um, but I think it's probably going to a museum, maybe. Your colleague, Maureen Dowd, wrote about how it's exhausting to be this outraged all the time. And we do seem to be in a permanent state of anger and outrage, lashing out at people who probably have much more in common with us than we realize. And you say permanent indignation is not a healthy emotional state. How do we de-escalate this anger and how do we prevent this from being our default emotion because it seems like it's been this way for quite a while now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if Biden wins, he's just less outrageous than Donald Trump, whatever you think of his views. And he's, what really struck me is remember that, that a couple of weeks ago, they both had town halls at the same time. Yes. And you knew going in that Biden's was going to be more boring than Trump's and indeed it was, but more people watched Biden's than watched Trump's. And that said to me that people are ready for a little little boredom, a little normal political discussion. And I do think, A, if Biden wins, we won't have to think about the presidency all the time. And B, frankly, for a lot of us, it's easy clickbait to just outrage about Trump all the time. And maybe politics will be less central and we can go, I like, I prefer writing about culture than I do to politics, but I can't do that now because people only read one subject, which is politics. So... I'd love to be able to go back and write about cultural stuff and moral stuff and emotional stuff. And I think we would all just, blood pressure would just go down. I thought we could talk um, a little bit about weavers and what you're doing with that. Yeah, no, weavers are people who are at the local level building community. That One of them, for example, is a guy, Pancho Aguilas, who um, uh, he takes uh, undocumented immigrants who've broken their backs and been paralyzed by construction accidents. And he gives them wheelchairs and diapers and catheters so they can lead lives with dignity. And then he organizes them. They all become uh, social workers. So you'll be in a neighborhood and 50 Latino guys in wheelchairs will roll in your neighborhood to, to do good work for you. Uh, and so those people are everywhere. We, you know, at the Weave Project, we go around the country. We land in a little town, McCook, Nebraska, Wilkes, North Carolina. And we say, who's trusted here? And immediately we find 75 people who are just love their town and they want to serve it, and they do. And what we we do is we try to lift them up, maybe give them some resources, connect them with each other, make them more powerful figures in our society so we can all sort of copy them a little. David, how can Trump supporters and Biden supporters learn to respect one another? Yeah, repeating back to each other what we believe. <laughs> like, here's why, I, I tell me if I'm right, here's why I think you believe what you believe. And and just having a conversation that way. I've I, people basically want respect and a lot of people feel invisible. When I would go to the Midwest years ago, I, once a week I'd hear, oh, you guys regard this as flyover country. And then two years ago, that, I heard that eight times a day. People just don't feel seen. They, they feel they're ignored and looked down upon. And if you, you know, I, by, I think you show respect to Trump voters and who follow you. And that's the first step is showing basic respect. And of course, we're going to disagree. That that's called democracy. But uh, disagreeing with a, a show of affection and respect 
and with a sense that we all do love the same country. Uh, and I think a lot of people who are voting for Trump uh, are afraid that we don't all love the same country. We don't all love our country. And some people just want to run it down and change it. Uh, and I think Biden, again, has done a good job of saying, hey, I love America. This is the America. This is my country. And um, if we have that mutual affection, then we have something in common. Hey, listeners, I'll be back in just a few days with my post-election episode of Turnout. In the meantime, I'd love to hear your voting story, whether you voted early in person, sent in your mail-in ballot, or are planning to vote on Election Day. Tell me what your experience was like and how it felt, good or bad. You can call 844-479-7883 and leave your name in a short 30-second message, and we may share it on an upcoming episode. Again, that number is 844-479-7883. Happy voting, everyone. Turnout is a production of iHeartMedia and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are Katie Couric and Courtney Litz. Supervising producers Lauren Hansen. Associate producers Derek Clements, Eliza Costas, and Emily Pinto. Editing by Derek Clements and Lauren Hansen. Mixing by Derek Clements. Our researcher is Gabriel Loser, and special thanks to my right-hand woman, Adriana Fazio. You can follow me in all my election coverage at Katie Couric. Meanwhile, yes, I'm Katie Couric. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app. Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts.